Welcome to The Bike Show. I'm Jack Thurston. It's been a long time, hasn't it? <laughs> quite a lot of months, not quite a full year since the last episode of The Bike Show. And I'm out on a bike ride. Um, it's the evening, about, I guess about nine o'clock. I fancied a flat ride. And um, where I am, there's only two options for a flat ride. You either go up the River Usk or you go down the River Usk, and I've come down the River Usk to uh, Newbridge on Usk, where I've made the turn, and um just about to head back north to Abergavenny. So I know a lot of you wondered whether the bike show was ever coming back, and I have to say, I wondered the same thing myself at times. No particular reason, the fact is I've just been kind of busy with other stuff, um, finishing a book bringing up two children, trying to scrape out some kind of living and the bike show just um, had to take a break for a little while. But I'm back um, for a few months at least, um, hopefully more. We'll see how that goes. And I'm delighted that the podcast is returning with an extended chat I had earlier today with um, someone who I've kind of admired from afar for a number of years now. His his name's Max Leonard. Um, he's a cycling writer, instigator. Um, he's done some interesting bike rides and he's written some interesting books and articles. And he always has a an interesting take on cycling. Uh, we chatted down the line because um, he now lives in the south of France and so it wasn't possible for us to meet up in person. So Max is the author of a number of books, um, he started out with um, a project called Fixed, um, looking at fixed wheel culture around the world. He went on to write the Cycle City Guides, which is a series of guides to um, European and I think cities in other parts of the world with a focus on how you can enjoy them by bicycle. And those were published by Thames and Hudson and in association with Rafa. His first kind of literary book I suppose was um, a book called Lantern Rouge which came out a few years ago which is a sort of history of the Tour de France told through the eyes and the stories of the people who came last in that race which was a very interesting sideways look at um, at the Tour de France from the back of the race. His most recent book is called Higher Calling and that's all about cycling in the mountains and the obsession with going uphill on a bicycle and we talk a lot about that in our chat we also talk a bit about bike packing about um, evolution in bicycle design we talk a bit about fat tires on road bikes Um, we oh there goes the milk truck shining under the stars We talk about um, off-road cycling in the Alps, um, which relates to a new project that he's um, got underway at the minute. We chatted away for quite a while. I thought Max had a lot of interesting things to say. So I'm going to get on my bike and uh, head back north. And I hope you enjoy uh, the next hour or so of, of chat with Max Leonard. And by the time you've listened all the way through, I should be back at Abergavenny or near enough. See you in a bit. Maybe I shouldn't ask you the obvious question, um, but I'm going to. What motivated you to move from Brexit Britain to the south of France, Max? It seems strange when you put it like that, doesn't it? I, I mean, I've been, been travelling with my bike and for various bits of writing work for a long time, and that's mainly been in France because I studied French and I've spent a lot of time here. And obviously the Tour de France is about France. And a lot of what I love about cycling actually is to do with France and the countryside and exploring and all the amazing mountains there are here and not just the kind of uh, well-known bits of the Alps and the Pyrenees but you know the Massif Central just the kind of sort of random ranges of hills that don't have many you know stories attached to them or big names but are still really great to ride in and um, I came to Nice because I've got some good friends here and have been working here for a while but I wanted to try and get some peace and quiet and try and think of a new book idea but um that hasn't gone all that successfully yet and I don't have a great knowledge of the next thing I'm going to do but I have ridden my bike a lot and it's really really pleasant to be here so not all bad I mean you have got this amazing um work rate um, and all the time that I've been wanting to have you on on the on the podcast I've been you know oh god Max has 
produced another great book. We must get him on. But the one I want to talk about um, first is, is I guess, your latest book, um, Higher Calling, which um, is all about road cycling's obsession with the mountains. And um, it's out in paperback this year. It was out in hardback last year, I think. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm very flattered that you think that I've got a good work rate, by the way. Well, compared to me, um, maybe that's maybe that's a backhanded compliment. Um, it's a great concept because I don't think anyone's written a book. Well, certainly nobody's written a book like this, but nobody's written a book even trying to do this, uh, which is to go beyond a kind of list of famous climbs in professional road racing and actually to get at the the stuff of why we like to ride uphill. Because I guess to people who don't ride bikes it seems like the craziest thing to do it's like the last place you'd want to ride a bike is up a hill because it's so much harder you know there's loads of books around that tell you where the mountains are and a lot of very good ones too like Daniel Freib's books and Graham Fife and there's a lot of them that tell you what happened in a certain year in the Tour de France or whatever and who who beat who um but none of them really were trying to address the question of what drives us to go there in the first place and the race is obviously part of it, but you know, amateurs uh, go there too, and and we get a lot more out of it than just watching races. It's one of those things that you either get it or you don't. And if you say to someone who's a non-cyclist, "Yeah, I'm going to spend hours and hours riding uphill," you know, from a like nice, warm, safe valley up to where it's probably cold and might be bad weather and storms, and it's kind of mentally and physically exhausting, and they look at you like you're a bit crazy at times or just you know can't really believe it but you say it to another cyclist or some other cyclists anyway and they just kind of something clicks in their head and they know exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it and I just wanted to really have a long and and hard think about what it is that we do and why we do it to ourselves. It's interesting that the subtitle of the book is road cycling's obsession with the mountains because I, I went I started going out once I moved down here to the Brecon Beacons um I went out with some mountain biking folk um i'm not really into mountain biking but i thought living here you know you've really got to give it a go because there's so much of it around and it dawned on me that it's completely the reverse for mountain bikers they they kind of deal with the 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 uphill but it's all about the downhill for them whereas for road cycling it's all about the climb and then the descent is sort of something that kind of comes afterwards and it's not necessarily the be all and end all. It's strange that there should be, should be that difference in there, even within cycling, about how we approach um, hills. Yeah, it is, and I, you know, I really like descending, especially if you're on a nice road with beautiful views, and you know, you get some really exhilarating and lovely moments. But when it, you know, I'm making my plans or figuring out where I want to go, or you know, thinking about getting on my road bike, it's really the uphill, you know, that that is what preoccupies me i don't you know the downhill is an added bonus but it does that's not what drives me and i don't think it drives i think that's true of a lot of people i think that they they want to do the up and and the down is like an added bonus but yeah it is about road cycling mainly because that's really where i started uh riding i guess i grew up in the middle of london so um didn't have all that many opportunities to mountain bike as a kid although now i live in nice it's a lot easier to get out and uh find some good trails and that kind of thing and that every time I've lived somewhere where it's been possible I've really wanted to get out mountain biking more. You said you've always been into road cycling is that is that how you is that your sort of cycling journey from from youth um, I mean it, everyone's got an, their own journey to where they are as a cyclist today um, tell us about yours. I rode a bike a lot as a kid and I actually had a mountain bike when I was little and you know would ride on holidays and that kind of thing but no, I really started cycling properly, if, if you know, properly in inverted commas, whatever that means, uh, at university or afterwards. And I was living in Brighton and uh, doing a master's and had a friend on my course who lived in Eastbourne. And I kept on saying to him, oh, I'll, I'll ride my bike over the cliffs and come and see you. And um, I had a kind of old road bike that I used to ride around town. And it was one of those things where eventually you just you say something so many times that you feel uh, compelled to put your money where your mouth is and so I got on my bike and rode from Brighton over to Eastbourne which is about 25 miles and uh, very beautiful if you know the the coast road and the, the national park there and the cliffs and I was really really very difficult and I, I, you know, I, was, I got off and walked up some hills and uh, I look back at it now with you know being a more experienced cyclist I think well that's pretty easy now but um, yeah at the time it was quite a big deal but it just sort of grabbed me after that and I, I rode this old 
road bike around uh, and started learning the lanes around Brighton. And I guess it was that was when it really struck me that as so, you know, someone who'd grown, grown up in the middle of a city, that how important green spaces and the kind of outdoors and exploring and those things were to me. And that was in my early mid twenties, and that's well, just kind of fifteen years ago now, I guess. Oh, that's interesting, um, and and particularly in relation to the book, because you have an episode where you um you ride up one of those hills. You, in fact, you Everest it. Yes. Tell us, tell us about Everesting. Yeah, that's it. It's one of those other things. That you, another situation where I said I would do something enough that I actually had to go and do it. Everesting was invented by a guy called George Mallory, who is actually related to the famous George Mallory, who died uh, tragically on Everest in the 1920s. And George Mallory Jr., the grandson, was training for a trip to climb Everest, you know, normal alpine style climbing, not bike climbing. And he was trying to think of how to get fit to do this. And he sort of figured that nothing you could do could make you too fit to climb Everest. And he was already a good uh, rock climber, mountain climber, but he had a road bike and he thought, well, why don't I ride my road bike up and down my local mountain? He happened to live in Melbourne at the time until I've achieved the same height elevation uh, as I would climbing Everest from sea level. So 8,848 meters. Uh, it took him quite a while to do it in several attempts, and he, he documented it in an article. But eventually, he got to the top, or you know, the top of his virtual Everest on his bike. And this was sometime in the mid '90s, I think. And it would have just sort of been lost to posterity, and uh, except that he wrote this article and gave it to someone who eventually published it on the web. And some other guys from Melbourne found it and were inspired and started. Everesting themselves, they chose a different hill and they rode up and down it uh, x number of times, and it sort of took off from there with Strava and all the different ways of sharing and recording your rides now. And the idea of Everesting is really quite simple: that you have to stay on one hill and you just go up and down the same road until you've climbed the cumulative elevation of eight thousand eight hundred and forty-eight meters. Um, you can eat, you can drink, you can sit down. The only thing they say you're not allowed to do is uh, is sleep. So I went to a hill called Fell Beacon, which is on the South Downs, sort of near Lewis, actually, a bit uh, further away from Brighton. And it was a hill that I knew from when I lived down there. And I used to ride up and down a bit. And when I was training or trying to get fit, I knew that it was a good hill to do because it's quite steep, which means that you don't have to go quite as far horizontally if you see what I mean and it was also quite pretty and very quiet because there's only a car park at the top it's kind of like Ditchling Beacon which quite a lot of people know but um, Ditchling Beacon is busy because it's got cars going up and down all the time and you can't see around the corners and it's a bit sort of closed in but Fell Beacon is very nice and quiet and beautiful so it seemed like not a bad place to try and do it. And how many times were you going to have to do it? How many, how many times are you going to have to ride that hill to get to the top of Everest? Well, yeah, I mean, Fell Beacon is, I think the top of it is something like 180 metres above the sea. And you can almost see the sea from the top, actually, because it's right on the the south coast. And so the climb is about 130 metres from bottom to top. So that makes 68 times up and down. Wow. Wow. Because <laughs> our big climb um, here in, in Abergavenny is the is the Blorange Mountain. There are various ways up it. And mm-hmm. um, the most famous one is the Tumble. And I think someone Everest did it. And I think you had to do 20 or so ascents um, because I guess it was it's a it's a it's a bigger climb, yeah. it, which is harder. A lot of climbs with a small recovery in between or or a smaller number with um i guess a longer recovery in between each ascent which what do you think is the, the harder way of, of of doing an everesting attempt i think it's harder to do uh, a long ascent with a long recovery only because the sort of certain practical reasons like my climb i think my circuit from bottom to top and back down to the bottom again took something like 12 minutes and that was kind of constant all the way through the day it was about it was 13 hours of riding and 17 hours overall. But if you're just doing one little climb and going up and down, you can always stop at your car or, you know, where you've put your picnic basket and you can get food, you can get water, you can put on your jacket, you can take off your jacket. Where someone else was asking me about doing, uh, you know, really big mountains and 
like the Bonnet, which is one of the highest roads in Europe. And if you do that, then you've got problems with altitude, you've got problems with weather, you know, you probably only see your stuff every once, once in every couple of hours. So actually like much of Everesting is not about sort of physical capabilities. There's a lot of psychology in it, but there's a lot of sort of practical things as well. You can do like, you know, well, we had a big, I had a big pile of peanut butter sandwiches that I just dipped into all the time and, it was a really blooming hot day. So we had, I had like, you know, a big 20 litre thing of water and, you know, just to be able to stop and do that whenever you want, it really helped out and definitely slowed me down. I would have been quicker if I was on a bigger hill probably, but um, in terms of actually getting it done and making it possible, I think that's, that would be my advice to anyone crazy enough out there to want to go do it. And, you know, it was fascinated me as a concept, but I sort of wanted to use it to try and understand like the whole book does, you know, why, why we do these things and what, what the point is. And it actually didn't really help me at all. I, I got to the end and it was kind of none the wiser, although um, I did quite enjoy it in the end, I think. Is that all there is moment at the end? Is that all there is to Everesting? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a kind of, I guess it's a, you know, it's a sort of strange anticlimax because it's one of those things that you focus on for quite a long time. It, you know, it's like any kind of challenge or, or, you know, what they say about the Bradley Wiggins after the Beijing Olympics is, you know, you have this huge challenge and, you know, you're fixating on something for, in his case, you complete years and then you win your medals and you're like, okay, well, right, what do I do now? It's, uh, it's a, you know, you, you've had you've had so much time fixating on one thing that it leaves you a bit sort of empty and hollow. And actually, I, there's a great book by Haruki Murakami, the Japanese writer, called um what i talk about when i talk about running and it's it's all about him and his relationship with marathon running and long distance sport and his writing and a really brilliant book I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone but he did a kind of ultra marathon thing and and he i think he sort of got to the same conclusion so well if you do this thing and you sort of put all your hopes and your dreams and all your store of emotions into it and then at the end you, you kind of empty and you need to fill yourself up again somehow and move on to the next thing. Yes. Yeah. Find a new uh, ridiculous mountain to climb, you know, literally or metaphorically. So in terms of um, getting better at climbing, because I think all of us would like to be able to get better, whether it's to do it faster and get higher up that Strava leaderboard or whether it's to um, be able to you know, not suffer so much. And to, uh, that's more my perspective. You know, I'd like to be able to keep going and not feel that every time I go up a great big hill, I'm kind of massively reducing the distance that I'm going to be able to cycle for the rest of the day. I'd like to be able to just kind of cruise over them and be totally fresh at the top rather than sort of battling in a sweaty mess. What can we do to to improve our our climbing abilities? It's an interesting question. You're totally right that I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was that I think that every cyclist wants to be better uphill and it's one of those marks, you know, it marks out in most people's minds, what, you know, I, what a good cyclist is or what a good cyclist does. And that's it's like, you know, it's kind of a strange thing, but I guess it's like other things in cycling. It's just, yeah, I don't particularly train in any structured way. I, I'm not, you know, I don't race and I'm not really into that kind of discipline and structure. And every time I do, I, I just sort of, burn out and put my bike in the corner and don't touch it so I'd much rather just do it for fun um but I guess it's like most things in cycling it's just time and effort is repaid you've got you put in you take out and more and more riding up hills more and more riding on the flats more and more riding generally will help everything I think and you know if you do want to get technical about it you can find training programs for it and you know you can start doing intervals and you can go on your turbo trainer and and things like that but but I don't think there's much of a substitute for just going out and doing more of it. And I think the other thing about climbing and looking at people climbing is it's, it's easy to think that um, people going faster than you are somehow, you know, not feeling as bad as you are at that point in time. But I think probably everyone, if if they're climbing at a good speed, is is still is feeling discomfort and managing it in their own way. And it, it comes back to that Greg Lamont thing of, you know, it never gets easier. You just go faster. And I was actually working, doing some cycle guiding uh, at the Paris-Nice Challenge this weekend, which was uh, held over one of the stages of the Paris-Nice professional race. And, you know, 2,000 amateurs going around and, the people I was guiding and helping up the hills thought that I was 
perfectly in control and feeling good. And then I, you know, at points I wasn't at points I was, you know, feeling bad or, or trying really hard, but they, I guess you don't see it very much. And then I would see people sort of zip past me really fast and think, Oh, you know, they look like they're having an easy time, but probably they were in their turn, you know, pushing their limits too. There is in the book one interesting shortcut to uh, better climbing that I hadn't heard before, which um, is rather extraordinary. Do you want to tell us about how um, George Mallory uh, get, gets better at climbing? He was quite an extreme case and he was absolutely obsessed with and is absolutely obsessed with data and with uh, you know percentages of climbs and a thing that he calls the VAM envelope, which without getting too technical, it's like, no, the VAM is how many meters uh, you ascend vertically in an hour. And so he was looking for climbs where he could push his VAM envelope and try and get the maximum possible number of meters ascended in each hour. And while pro cyclists often go on altitude camps to help them acclimatize and deal with the lack of oxygen and, and stimulate red blood cells in their blood so that they were carrying more oxygen to their muscles and therefore able to ride faster, he decided that the best thing for him to do, you know, working in a normal job in an office somewhere in Melbourne was uh, in his lunch times to do some stair running. So run up the central stairwell of his office building and hold his breath because he reasoned. And I think actually, although it sounds crazy with pretty good evidence uh, that if you hold your breath, you are sort of getting your body to learn how to adapt and to deal with being in an oxygen deprived state and so this was going to help him when he was doing his very intense efforts climbing up a hill on a bicycle i talked to a professor um and he actually sort of corroborated this and and confirmed that this was not a bad way of doing things but george really pushed uh pushed the limits at times and he told me at one point that he was running up the stairs in his office and he'd been holding his breath and he he sort of pushed himself so far into the red that he blacked out and almost fell back down again and did you try um, what tr- to try to do that to improve your climbing? Did it work? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Uh, it sounds to me like absolute torture. Um, but it just sort of goes to show the the kind of obsession that I guess people have, and we all manifest in our own ways about you know improving what we do or, or get, you know reaching those goals or, cl- or climbing the hills that we want to climb. It, it's quite interesting because it made me think about. Um, fell running um which is a mm. that the people do in the brecon beacons and I, I i was foolish enough to go for a run last year um just the one and um we've got a big hill at the back of us um called the sugarloaf and it's quite it's quite steep mm-hmm. in parts um especially at the, at the beginning um out from you know just from where the house is it's a kind of 15 percent, and then goes up steeper on the on the walking trails and i found the strangest thing that when I was attempting to run up this thing, I didn't get any of the same sensations that I get if I'm trying hard on a bicycling climb. I didn't get kind of pain in my legs and and kind of feeling like my legs didn't have any more strength in them. I just got this feeling that I couldn't breathe fast enough, that I was just totally Mm. kind of hyperventilating and that my legs actually weren't sore or hurting at all. It's just, I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. And it was like my lungs were the limiting factor, not my legs. I don't know whether the people who take cycling more seriously than I do in terms of performance, that's how they feel or whether that's just an example of the specificity of running rather than cycling and that, you know, it involves different muscles. And um, I I just found it very strange that I wasn't feeling tired in the way that I'm used to feeling tired, but I was not going very fast and I was really suffering. Yeah, I think I it, I think it's something to do with the intensity, isn't it? it it's it, it's the, the difference between doing extremely intense anaerobic exercise, i.e., so you're not getting enough oxygen through your uh, you know heart and lungs to the muscles that need them, versus uh, even what would be described as an endurance effort, even if you're riding up a hill for you know relatively speaking not a very long period of time. So it'd be the difference between like a sprint effort on a bike and uh and a you know a longer effort and that that riding up a hill thing or running up a hill and i i just think that's a kind of terrible terrible painful intensity that you see when in you know in cyclocross races as well when when people are just absolutely flat out for an hour and you know gasping or or you know, the three peaks when the cyclocross race where 
everyone you know shoulders the bike and then and then tries to run up a mountain and it is really really huge efforts whereas i think if you've got a reasonable level of fitness and you know you haven't got a bike laden with all sorts of things then riding up a, a hill or a mountain needn't be totally painful you know you can sort of go slow and and you know try and measure yourself out and try and pace it and try and, and enjoy it too but yeah i'm no good at that really like super intense like hardcore effort and i'm much better at the kind of longer in some ways easier efforts of you know riding up a mountain which even though it's 20 kilometers uphill say you don't have to sort of go all out for for that period of time you spent some time with some professional bike racers um for the book um is there anything different or interesting about the way that they approach climbing mountains because it's they obviously go a lot faster than we do but um is there anything more than the fact that they're just fitter and and stronger than us that was something that was quite important to me actually was to try and understand what it would be like to race up a mountain because lots of people can ride up a mountain you know any decent amateur cyclist you know of kind of a surprising like surprisingly large age range you know given enough time and effort will be able to ride up a mountain but to race up one is a totally different thing and and again it comes back to this idea of like painful effort and intensity and so I was talking quite a lot to a guy called Joe Dombrowski who rides was riding for Drapak Cannondale at the time and is now riding for the same team it's called um Drapak Education First powered by Cannondale which is, has to be one of the catchiest bike team names ever um as a young rider he was a kind of rising star and was thought to be like a an amazing climber and has got very you know very genetically talented and, and a very 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 good bike rider but at the time that I spoke to him he hadn't quite sort of made the leap and transitioned into making that a big success in the professional world and so I thought he'd be a great guy to talk to about it because he's super clever and he's a really great bike rider and uh, he was something that he thought about a lot and we had some really really great conversations we talked about training and I went to see him at altitude camp and that kind of thing but the actual race situation was interesting he talked a lot about control and about being able to control your own effort and mastering yourself and if you're feeling good and you're winning the race then you're kind of pretty much in control of what you're doing but if you're being put to the test by someone else and and you know they're feeling stronger than you basically you're kind of losing control and you're not in control of that situation anymore and that was for him not something that was quite marked about racing in the mountains but there were also really interesting little sort of tactical nuances that you know if you ride on your own and you ride fairly slowly like most of us do you'd never get like staying in a group in headwinds and then oh you go around a switchback and it changes from headwind to a tailwind and then when you're back in the headwind you need to you know it, it, all these all these like tiny little tactical things but I think yeah mainly for him it was a, it was a question of you know who's in control of the situation that you know am I put am I uh, making my rivals uncomfortable or are they making me uncomfortable and who can really last the longest in this duel and and it's a sort of an external battle up the hill but it's also an internal battle with your physiology and with your power meter and, and those kind of things to just see who lasts the course and can keep turning the pedals and not drop the wheel in front of them for the longest one thing that comes through in the book um really strongly and in fact it's probably the thing that i enjoyed most was the way you describe the mountains and not just your own reaction to them and your your very eloquent beautiful descriptions of, of the world as it changes as you go from the valley up to the top which you know i really really enjoyed those passages um but also you get into the kind of people who work on the mountain whether they're farmers people who live on the mountain the guys who clear the roads so you really go behind the story of the lovely bit of tarmac that goes up into the clouds you, have you got a bit you're going to read for us from the book thanks for saying that it's it's nice to know but yeah I sort of figured that if you're riding uphill slowly for a long time you know and you're not asking yourself well why is this road here what's going on over there what's the what's the guy feeling who's standing over there with his sheep why is there a, a, a castle here why is, why is there a fort why is there a hydroelectric power you know who looks after the road when when it's covered in snow for six months a year if, if you're not thinking those things then in a way you, you, for me it's, it's you'd rather you know it's not much different from being on an exercise bike in a gym so 
so I, re- I wanted to try and understand a bit more about the kind of whole mountain environment that we get you know I feel quite privileged to see sometimes when I'm riding up there on my bike but I did pick out a little bit to read and it's about a, a sort of legendary coal in the Alps which is not actually a road coal it's it's a uh, gravel coal which uh, has a sort of amazing history among French cyclotourists and I went along with some friends to uh, try and ride up it and it didn't quite go to plan Quickly, the asphalt became broken and rutted, and then, past a spring and a small chapel, it turned into a dirt track shaded by dark pines. The first few tightly pinned switchbacks led us deeper into the forest, trees bearing down upon us, crowding our vision, so that we could not tell if the forest simply went on and on without end. But then we rounded a corner, and it opened out into a stunning glacial valley with acid green grass, guarded by a hiker's refuge, a small stream and a bridge. Ahead, the path narrowed and climbed steadily up, and the brightness of the alpine meadows shaded into white. Beyond the bridge, the track steepened and the stones grew larger. Mud began to stick to our tyres and brake calipers, making every turn of the pedals a huge effort, whose reward was only a few centimetres progress, dizziness, and a darkening of vision from oxygen depletion. At 2,300 metres, fresh snow began to impinge on the track, which had become a muddy meltwater stream tacking up the valley side. I stopped several times to clear the clinging mud from my bike frame and stop the grit scoring circles into my wheel rims. At about 2,400 metres there were wolf tracks in the snow that now covered the path and we were forced to dismount definitively, pushing our bike towards the top of the coal like the races in the earliest days of the tour. The marmots that were playing with increasing insouciance all around us seemed to think that this valley belonged to them but, in the silence of the clouds on that wet, stony track, it felt as if those heroes of bygone days might still be out there on the road, that the mud and spray raised by their passing had just settled, and that they were just out of sight around the corner, or over the coal, diving down towards the finish in the valley far below. Around 80 metres below the coal, just underneath the final switchback, a sort of muffled, anaesthetised calm descended. Our everything shrank into whiteness, and it began to snow gently. Although we had hoped to pass through the tunnel, we really had just climbed to see it, fully aware that the iron doors would probably be stuck shut. And, for an hour or two, we had believed we would get there. But now, as the temperature dropped in the grey clouds, we accepted we were not going to make it, and turned around and walked and freewheeled down again. Not victorious, but somehow not defeated. We had ridden up a track as if riding back in time, into one of the most beautiful valleys on earth, and, finally, that was enough. Confronting the tunnel would have been an exercise in pataphysics, an imaginary solution to a problem that did not exist. One of my companions that day has since gone back, but later in the year, and he tells me just how close we were to making it. He also tells me that the journey through the iron doors into the icy blackness and towards the pinprick of faraway light was just as dark and as thrilling as we'd hoped. An ocean without a monster lurking in the deep would be like sleep without dreams, and without dreams we would be but cows in a field. I'm sure that the tunnel is there. I will go back. I know that one day I will see it. Thanks, Max. Um, I think you get a flavour for the way you have this ability to describe things, um, both externally and internally, and and the book is really um, full of that quality of writing so it's a book that I can highly recommend and and that takes us that reading actually takes us very neatly to um to your next or your current project doesn't it yeah um it it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier um the kind of what next phenomenon I guess that once you've ridden the mountains and you've ridden the kind of famous climbs and you've explored a bit you sort of think well where do I go next and what would I like to do and and for me as well as for a lot of people at the moment uh look people turning to sort of gravel bikes or adventure bikes whatever you want to call them and starting to ride a bit more off-road and and maybe carrying them stuff bikepacking or or touring and I spent quite a lot of time on another book project actually which was about the bunkers in the mountains in the southern Alps researching where places were hiking around and trying to find these old military roads that took you to the fortifications that were built during the Second World War or in the run-up to the Second World War. 
And while I was doing that, I sort of found a few references to a book called Rough Stuff Cycling in the Alps, um, which was by a guy called Fred Wright. And it uh, looked like it was published in the early 2000s and uh, described in detail something like 300 routes ranging from sort of easy unsurfaced roads and gravel tracks to sort of footpaths, ladder climbs, and even sort of walking across glaciers with your bike. And uh, it looked to me like it would have been tremendously useful to my project I was doing, but I couldn't find a copy. Uh, it was self-published by Fred. He made a few copies and uh, it got distributed, uh, especially among the Rough Stuff Fellowship, which is an old British club organization that gathers together people who like riding off-road mountain biking before mountain biking um, in some cases since it's been going for I think 70 years but yeah the book was impossible to find and, and I would have really loved it and I would have loved to know you know this knowledge that it was passing down but couldn't do it and eventually decided that it might be a good idea to try and contact Fred and uh, republish it so with the help of a guy called James Olson who runs a bike event called the Torino Nice Rally using a lot of these gravel roads in the Alps to take people from Turin to Nice. Uh, I got in contact with Fred and we're republishing it. That's fantastic. So it's the holy grail of um, off-road gravel riding in the Alps. And um, it's so great that you're doing this because it's a, it's a book that I've sought out, I have to say, because there were some, there were some excerpts, um, I mean, just a few photos really on the web a few years ago, which have since disappeared or you, you can find them through the Wayback Machine. Um, but, you know, yeah, the book was elusive. I think there were only 100 copies made. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And, and uh, you know, these days we've got so many resources to help you find your routes and, and plan your routes on the internet. And, you know, when I've done touring or, you know, bikepacking before, I you know, I've used, used Google Maps, you use paper maps, you use Street View, and then sort of the next level of of investigation is i you know i end up on german motorbiker sites of those guys you know who ride overland motorbikes through the mountains or you go to french mountain bike sites or italian walkers sites and so you find all these different accounts of different roads and paths and tracks and footpaths that people have taken but um to know that there's this kind of repository of knowledge of all these guys who kind of sort of pioneering in their own way you know riding a bike through the alps it was really attractive to me and there's something really very british in it as well it's the kind of audax spirit where you know you sort of turn up in a church hall and there's there's a, a few people hanging around in in you know not very not very smart looking bike clothes but then they go and you know do a 1200 kilometer ride without really batting an eyelid and and fred and his friends sort of took their touring bikes in the any time from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and just sort of headed off into the peaks. And, and, you know, they'd ride on the road and then they'd say, oh, well, what about if I want to get from this road to that road, can I take this path? And they'd just sort of do it. I talked to Fred and I met him and he's a really lovely, lovely guy. He's 82 now. It was really very inspiring to meet him. And he gave me uh, a lot of his old photos to scan. So I'm really happy to say that the new edition of this book is going to include lots of amazing, beautiful old photos of Fred and his friends making their way through the Alps and all taken with a just a kind of pocket camera. But because it's film, it's just a sort of lovely quality to the images. And the book is being funded and produced using a Kickstarter, which is, which is going pretty well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I figured that you know, I wanted to see it and I knew a couple of other people who were interested and I knew that, you know, bikepacking and gravel riding and that kind of thing was something that more and more people wanted to do. But I was very surprised that we that we hit our target so quickly and we, we're sort of, I think we're somewhere near 700% over the top of it now. And I mean, I'd, I'd set the bar very low. I wanted to, you know, I, I figured that if I made 100 books, I probably wouldn't lose much money and uh, it would be just good to bring this thing back into the world and, and, you know, make something nice for the sake of it. But we reached our target in 
about three hours and and it, it's kept on going and so now we're going to add more photo pages we're going to make the book nicer as an object you know using better paper and covers and that kind of thing and um donating a bit more money to charity as well um but really i've been blown away that people from all over the world have been interested and i had an email this morning from someone in bogota uh wondering if he's ready for his trip for the summer so um it's it's really struck a chord which has been amazing so it's a piece of cycling history, but it's also something that people can actually use to make their own trips. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, we're going to be putting in a new introduction from Fred and, and from James Olsen from the Torino Nice Rally. And I'm, I'm going to put in a sort of publisher's disclaimer, I guess, because the information is quite old. It's, it's, a, it's a reprint of an old book. And if you're in the mountains, then you know, you have to apply common sense and, and you know, do your research properly and, you know, look after yourself and not you know, head off up a track if if the weather's looking dodgy and, and all that kind of thing but but I do really actually think it's it's a, a practical book to use and it will sort of give you ideas of how to get from one place to another and uh, I would think I would see using it myself as you know as a real a source of a sort of primary source of knowledge about what might be possible and you know help me plan if i'm if i'm wanting to tour across the dolomites say or or you know do a, some days riding in the tyrol in austria and then using fred's accounts which are all nicely written and sort of giving perfect personal information about what he saw and what happened on that day cross-referencing them with the other more modern ways of doing things and you know making a route on on a you know route mapping site and um, that it can be really useful but yeah, it is partly a historical document as well and it's it's worth it just for for me just for the photos and for the fact that it's you know keeping this information alive and so the kickstarter is open for a few more days i think um if you want to um to back the project i think it's it's 25 pounds isn't it for a, for a copy of the book plus postage to anywhere in the world well worth it i think i mean i'd love to do some cycling like that when i get a bit of a get a bit of time is it I mean, you've you've obviously done a lot of, of cycling off-road tracks in the Alps as you, you did that reading earlier um any tips that you'd give people for um you know dipping a toe in the water obviously it's high mountains so it's something you you know safety is an issue but um what would you suggest that's a good question um you know I think a lot of people have have been coming to it because because they've ridden quite a lot in the mountains and because they've you know you don't want to probably ride up even the most amazing mountain climbs too much, you know, you, you could do, you don't want to just be stuck on Alpe d'Huez forever or, or Galibier. So, so it's probably not your first port of call if you're, if you're off riding in the mountains, cause you, you know, you might want to go and ride the famous roads first, but, but, you know, once you have a feel for it, I think a lot of these things are surprisingly doable. Um, and it, it's just a really lovely way of getting out into somewhere that's quieter, that's, a you know, more remote, a bit more isolated, just more naturally, you know, more natural beauty around you. Um, the routes that Fred picks, that he's, you know, everything ranging from really fairly easy stuff to glaciers. And so I, I personally wouldn't want to take my bike across a glacier, but I don't think uh, as a starting point that, that anyone should be discouraged. I think, you know, you just have to be sure that you're happy with your bike and your equipment and uh, use it you know, know where you're going, you have maps and you have, you're just, you know, prepared to, to look after yourself um, in the same way that you would if you were walking or, or doing any other activity, I guess. I mean, it is interesting how this is, this interest in going off-road, going off the beaten track is tying in with some quite radical evolution of the bicycle. I don't know which is coming first, which is a chicken or egg thing, um, but we're seeing these tire, uh, we're seeing these bicycles with fatter tyres with disc brakes, um, not so much reproductions of of road racing machines for the kind of amateur enthusiast market, but a, a different kind of bicycle that's not quite like a tourer, like a classic tourer that Fred would have been on. Um, it's, it, I genuinely do think it is a, a a new kind of bicycle. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I, I also think that if you look what they were riding in in the days of the first Tour de France, it, it's not that dissimilar either. They they had sort of big balloon tires and uh, you know longer wheel bases and, and that kind of thing. And it's kind of bringing it back to that because you, 
if you're a you know professional bike racer a road racer then then yeah you know you have these incredibly light and incredibly fast amazingly specialized machines but actually that probably doesn't suit most of us for most of our riding and and I love my road bike and and ride it all the time but it's is nice to know that on a gravel bike or an adventure bike or you know I don't even really know what what you call them but you can you know you don't have to worry about so much stuff and you can you can go off road and you can go on tracks and bridleways and and you know gravel and that kind of thing it combines the nice elements of a road bike is that you can you know you can ride a really long way and you're quite fast when you are on the road yeah because there's nothing there's nothing worse than riding a mountain bike on the road is there it's just a totally soul destroying experience it's nice that these bikes are lighter and and I read a really great article by An- Andy Waterman, uh, I think it was in The Independent a while ago, but about mountain biking and it was sort of about why mountain biking has maybe lost its way a bit and actually mountain bikes also are becoming very specialised. So, you know, a, a downhill machine is very different from a cross-country and, you know, it, they're very technical and, you know, mo- you know, front suspension, rear suspension, dropper posts and things like this, but but most mountain bike users probably all they need is a hardtail and uh big tires so they can go on their local bridleways or something like that and and so i think these these gravel bikes do fit in between the two because really for most of what most of us want to do we don't need uh all the te- those technical features and for me actually the, i guess I, the most important thing to say about them is it just makes riding fun again that if you you know you can just go do do things that you wouldn't have done otherwise it's a bit like being a, a kid again i guess which which is why i really like it yeah, like being a kid again. And also, as um, as the years march on, um, I find that a bike with bigger tyres, a bit more cushioning, um, is actually a lot more comfortable if you're doing really long days cycling. I mean, because I find that if I go out on my road bike, um, by the time I've done about five hours riding, I'm feeling pretty battered. Um, but if I go out yeah. on, a, on a bike with, you know, 40 mil tyres or, or I'm, I'm testing a bike, in fact, designed by... Um, James Olson, who you mentioned earlier, who is all, as well as running the Torino Nice Rally, as you know, uh, is the um, chief designer of the Pinnacle brand by Evans. In fact, the bike that I'm testing looks remarkably like a bike of yours, um, which is you, you've got a, a 650B um, wheel bike with balloon tires made by an American bike maker, haven't you? I think I saw it on your on your on your Twitter at one point. I was stalking your bikes, Max. <laughs> it's no it's it's a lovely bike by a company called Stinner Frameworks um and it is 650b and uh i think at the moment it's got 48 millimeter tires on it um the front one has got nobles on the back one doesn't only because i had a gash in one of my tires and have just replaced it so it's a bit of an odd looking thing at the moment but like i said i love riding my road bike and i've done pretty long tours on that but i did a uh, Paris to Corsica bikepacking slash touring thing last year and visited a lot of gravel roads in the Alps but you know from Paris to Corsica probably at least 80% if not 90% was on roads and it was pretty comfy and it was fast enough for me to get where I wanted to go so it was like the perfect combination of the different factors I guess like you said. So so living down there in the south of France you must have ridden down there a few times i mean obviously from paris to corsica but um other routes is it is it a nice route to do i mean we've just had paris nice the the bike race the race to the sun which i don't think was much of a race to the sun this time around but um it's, <laughs> it's, it's always a route that i would love to do um to basically to cycle from the english channel to the mediterranean the english channel to the mediterranean is is actually a really good one and there's a there's an old ordax permanent route i think it's called la mal des Andes, the the post box to the to the indies which follows and i can't remember exactly where it goes but there is an organized audax which goes from the the manche to the med as they call it when i went from paris to corsica you know there's so many different ways you could go i had been thinking about going through the massive central so kind of dead south from paris and into the mountains there because i lived in that part of the world a long time ago when i was at university but actually instead i headed southeast kind of pretty directly and, and rode as fast as I could to Annecy which just on the edge of the Alps in the north and then zigzagged all the way through and, and saw some parts of the Alps I'd never seen before like the uh the Vercors region which I 
definitely recommend as being absolutely stunning and very sort of isolated and wild. And then down into the Southern Alps, uh, north of Nice, uh, which I much prefer to the Northern Alps because it's, again, it's a lot more wild. It's a lot more remote. The valleys aren't so big, so you don't have the same sort of, some of the big valleys in the Northern Alps uh, in France, you know, you've got motorways, you've got garden centers and motels and you know they have to pack everything into these valleys because there's nowhere else to put all your civilization but then once you get down south everything gets smaller and and a bit wilder and so you you just really get very beautiful roads and and no traffic and uh you know none of that the annoyances of civilization but you know i think you could you could plot 20 different routes even just going different ways through the alps and have a great time but but the countryside is great the one thing i wouldn't do personally is go just sort of you i think one of the things you could do is you could go along the loire and then down the rhone and then you'd just stay in the lowlands and uh that wouldn't be for me at all <laughs> quite right i mean what's the reasonable amount of time um i mean obviously you're quite a speedy cyclist um but for for, for your average person what would you think would be average cyclist what do you think would be a, a reasonable amount of time to give to make that kind of journey in a in a, in a pleasurable route if you're talking about from the Mediter- from the from the channel, excuse me, then I, I guess it's two days to Paris if that's the way you're going to go at, at a nice sort of more leisurely rate. From Paris, I didn't really find a route I wanted to do that was less than a thousand kilometers. So at a uh, hundred kilometers a day, which is fairly long days, especially if you're on a loaded bike, then that's ten days. So I think you know maybe two weeks is would be uh, at the leisurely end of things. Um, I think I ended up doing 1,400 kilometers in 10 days. So that was faster or, or, or longer days. Um, I, in practice, I did long days at the start when it was fl- more flat and then sort of took my time a bit more in the Alps. But um, it's kind of, you know, how long is how long is a piece of string? And, and, you know, the more I thought about it, the more places I wanted to see. So the more windy my route got. Where did you stay along the way? Did you camp? Did you sleep out or... I mean, the great thing about France is that it's quite easy to find accommodation and it's not always sort of fully booked. That was one of the fun things, actually, is the sort of relinquishing control over what you were doing. I knew the first night I knew I was going to sleep out in Fontainebleau Forest because I got a sort of latish Eurostar to Paris. And I thought, well, I basically rode until it was dark and camped uh, by a track in the forest or bivied. I didn't have a tent. I just bivied. That was super good fun, um, if slightly worrying, because there were wild boar about, which which actually came pretty close, and I had to stand up and shout and flash my bike lights just to make sure every every living creature knew where I was. After that, it was a combination of I probably had some kind of proper accommodation every other night, so I would be in a hotel or in a caravan in a campsite, which was good for washing my stuff and you know having a hot meal, proper meal, and a shower and that kind of thing. But yeah, it was a combination of hotels, bivvying, campsite accommodation. And then once I got into the mountains, uh, refuges, either unmanned ones up high. It was still, it was June, so it was still quite um, early to be high up in the Alps. Or further along, kind of walkers hostels where they had dormitories and they they gave you a nice meal and uh, you have a hot shower and then get on going the next day. But to me, that was the kind of perfect combination because i don't think i'm hardcore enough to want to sleep out every night forever but also there's something in the romance of it that's lovely and uh it's cheap which is not to be discounted if you're on a on a a bike tour for a few days yeah it's reminiscent of a tour i did um in 10 years ago now um around france for five weeks where i kind of alternated wild camping with campsite and then once a week i'd you know treat myself to a night in a hotel or a gite or something like that to just get everything washed and cleaned and and it it feels nice to slip into the different roles and not feel like you're just constantly roughing it yeah and actually you know if i'm not wrong it's sort of what you did when you were researching your books the lost lanes uh you know bivvying sometimes and going around and about and and i think you know actually those books probably share quite a lot with fred and that idea of, of you know helping people find the routes that they want to find and, and digging up information that that is going to be really useful but might otherwise be lost and kind of helping people have this experience and and it seemed to me there were quite a lot of things to correspond there well I'm flattered by the comparison with with Fred but mine stuff is very much more lightweight but I mean certainly the longer you spend outside the more you learn the more you see 
the more you experience. I'm happy to do 16, 18 hour days. And if you bivy, that generally happens because, you know, you, you, you turn in about nine or 10 um, when it starts to get dark in the summer. And then, you know, you're up at five. Taking photographs as I as I do because you know, I do all the photography for the Lost Lanes books, you know th- those hours in the morning are so important for uh, for you know capturing the countryside at its at its best and also when the roads are quietest really. And actually, for me, like uh, although I, I do uh, you know a warm bed and a and a and a meal in a restaurant that kind of thing is very welcome. It's some sometimes it's a shame to get off your bike because for me the, the the nicest time to ride is is the sort of couple of hours before dusk, whenever dusk happens to be, but, you know, the, just when the world settles down and, and the lights kind of starts to fade and and you can have some really magic moments then. And if if you get to a hotel and, you know, you're back inside again, I, I really miss that. For sure. I mean, do you think that this is the kind of the future of um, cycling, um, getting a bit more into um, exploring? It's it's hard to tell what the, what the future evolution is of, of cycling is, but I'm very gratified with the way things kind of appear to be evolving um and that there is a bit of a mm. uh, a rupture between what amateurs enthusiasts people who see cycling as a pastime are doing and what the um you know what the professional racers are doing because i think i think that connection has been too close for, 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 for too long the idea that you know we just get a bike that's very much like a, a bike that's ridden in the tour de france um and then it's not really well adapted to to this kind of um exploring um, and, and travel the you know the bicycle as a, as a means of travel rather than as a as a, as a sporting pursuit or a mm. or, or a kind of fitness pursuit yeah i think we we all got very wrapped up in um in the sport thing you know for various reasons british cycling and the lottery and and uh the olympics successes and that kind of thing and, and i'll always want to write about sport um or cycle sport and grand tours and that kind of thing and i i absolutely love it but also what appeals to me is the kind of exploring and, and the more personal thing and, and the kind of, I would hesitate to say psychogeography, but, you know, that con- con- connections between between culture and places and landscapes and, and history and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that people are getting into it. And I would also say, actually, it's interesting that, you know, we have been maybe been sold bikes that are more used to for pro racing than than for mostly what amateurs want to do. But you can look at it the other way around too, is that there was a lot of resistance in the peloton, the professional peloton against having disc brakes, which if you, I, I don't really know what, well, I wouldn't presume to say what people think now, but I think a lot of the riders at, at initially were like, you know, we don't want this. It doesn't, it's not good in this situation. It could be dangerous in a group and there's all sorts of difficulties in using disc brakes in racing. But it seemed to me from going to Eurobike and, and covering the industry a bit that uh, really it was the manufacturer's, pushing disc brakes onto the teams because the pro peloton is the shop window for all the manufacturers and if they're not showing their products on pro bikes then a lot of the consumers aren't going to go for it and disc brakes actually make a lot more sense for for amateurs and for tourers and for all that kind of thing rather than in a professional peloton perhaps it's just that kind of exchange I thought was really interesting. You know, sometimes we want things that aren't right for them and and they want things that aren't right for us. And maybe now we're sort of slightly all going our own way again a bit. We've also got some um, sporting events, some, some races, which are a little bit related to kind of exploring and adventure Um, transcontinental, which I guess is an amateur race, but then you've got um, some pro races on the, on, on gravel roads, um, Strade Bianchi in, in, Italy do you see the sport may start to invent new disciplines um, new formats that that are a bit more like this to to kind of maintain that linkage between um, what's going on in the professional world and and what's going on in what's on sale in a in a, in a neighborhood bike shop yeah it's really interesting I, I was at Strada Bianchi actually last weekend and it was absolutely incredible and, and filthy and horrible and and the weather was terrible and and I'm you know what the guys were doing riding was really a kind of a heroic and also frightening and it could be talked about for hours what needs to be done with professional sport and you know to rejuvenate the calendar and keep professional cycling relevant but I, I do think they're looking for things like that and there is an incredible amount of excitement about Strada Bianchi uh, at the moment it's probably the most dynamic and sort of race that interests fans the most and there's also Trobro Leon which is 
another sort of slightly gravel-based race um, up in northern France and Paris-Roubaix, obviously, and these things that clearly are interesting fans and it's being reflected in, in the sport. And uh, there's even a kind of gravel stage on the Tour de France this year. Um, and I think uh, that's true of the Giro as well. I'm, I'm just trying to remember, remember if it's this year or not. They're doing the Col de la Fenestre. But yeah, I mean, I think that the race organisers would, would be foolish to ignore, you know, what public want to see and what the public are doing. And, and you know, hopefully it will be reflected. I don't know if that will mean that people will start racing on different bikes um, at, in, the, in the UCI World Tour. But I just, yeah, think it's a pretty exciting time for professional racing, actually. But we're not going to see anytime soon um, the professional peloton having a, you know, packing a bivy bag and, and heading off for a, 48 hour race across the mountains unsupported and having to find their own food along the way that you think that's that's a few years off yet i talked to the road racing uci pros about the transcontinental and, and they look at what what the transcontinental rider is doing with absolute awe and amazement and just think this is in, incredible and i think that yeah that you know in a lot of ways being inside that incredibly shiny bubble of pro road racing is not that relevant to what a lot of people do and that's why races like the transcontinental have been so popular is it gives you this kind of raw unmediated direct interaction between both the racer and the surroundings and their other and the competitors and also between the racer and the fans because as you know that you know watching the transcontinental on on a dot watcher is a kind of amazing sort of participatory activity uh, I think there's a lot of romance in it, and I think uh, cycling needs more of that. We all need more of that kind of romance back in things. So it's not all about technology and about power meters and about riding to numbers. It, it, it's about you know physical endeavor, and it's about sleeping outside at night, and it, all these different things. And and I think that is one of the reasons, at least, why Mike Hall's Transcon became so so popular and so important. Well, one thing that you said a few years ago. Um... I believe you said um, mm-hmm. was that was that, was, that, was that cycling is a socially acceptable way of spending time on your own. Oh yeah, no, I I, I think I did say that. Yeah, that attributable to M. Leonard because that's a very that's one of those things that ought to be put in any of those list of a hundred great cycling quotes. <laughs> um, do you still hold to that dictum? Yeah, I do. I, I, that, I mean, I did say that at some point, and and I, uh, someone else has, has said they liked it too. And and yeah, it's it to me, it's a really important way of getting me time. And and actually, I spend a lot of time on my bike thinking about the writing and and you know formulating things of that. And and I I would totally hold by that. And I'm not a very sort of clubby kind of person, so I don't spend a lot of time you know riding with bike clubs or doing much in the way of organized fun but you know I, I love riding with three or four and it's a very small group of friends at a time more than that it gets a bit much for me ditto with sportives and that kind of thing um but I you know I do come back to the bike again and again just to sort of spend some time thinking about things and working some things out so so yes that is that is totally my philosophy well thanks for um spending some time with with me on the bike show today and I wish you many um, happy journeys and, and look forward to when that idea for a new book does um, crystallize out on one of those lonely rides um, look forward to reading the product oh it's, it's not all bad but um yeah thank you for having me it's been really great to chat hello again i'm back in abergavenny after my ride um a little over 50 kilometers in a little over two hours which is just about right for an evening ride for me today felt like the first day of spring um, during the day and um, I celebrated this fact on the way back by stopping in at the co-op in Usk for a bag of Cadbury's mini eggs and um, tried to eat those uh, on the way back which is actually surprisingly difficult. I'd never before tried to eat mini eggs uh, while cycling and um, it's quite difficult to kind of fish your hand into the packet to pull out um, a mini egg while you're riding along if, if the packet's stuffed in your back pocket and you can't quite get purchase on the on the mini egg ultimately you either have to pull out a whole handful and then sort of chomp down on them all at once which is a bit disgusting or um, just commit to the whole bag and empty them into the jersey pocket and then you can just 
pick them out one by one, which is obviously what I ended up doing and uh, managed to consume the whole pack. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Max Leonard. I enjoyed chatting to him very much and um, hopefully sometime in the future our paths will cross and we'll be able to go for a ride together. That would be good. Um, The Kickstarter for Rough Stuff Cycling in the Alps, um, the reissue of um, or republication of Fred Wright's book has got a few days to run it's 25 pounds which um, yeah gets you a, a copy of the book and I think it's going to be a lovely book because um, as we discussed the kickstarter has gone really well which means that Max can um, put a bit more money into the production of a really beautiful object um, and a useful one too and that's it for the bike show uh, the return of the bike show there'll be some more shows um, in the weeks ahead keep an eye on your podcast feed because I will not be leaving it so long before the next episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.